Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. It's now mid-April, and this week we're celebrating both California Native Plant Week and Earth Day. Wildflowers are blooming and being admired across the country. This week in honor of Earth Day 2023 and all of the fierce and tender hopes we have for it, we're back in conversation with Ireland's Mary Reynolds, self-described as an ex-garden designer, actively reimagining and rebuilding relationship with nature through her most recent founding of a movement known as We Are the Ark, in which we transform our gardens and gardening into acts of restorative kindness, welcoming and supporting all manner of life. Some of you may remember our previous conversation with Mary in 2019 after her last garden book, The Garden Awakening, was published, and just as she was founding We Are the Ark. Mary's dedication and persistence around the importance of each of us stewarding the land we can is a bright spot in our world. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you once again, Mary. Welcome back to Cultivating place. Thank you, Jennifer. It's lovely to be here again. Um, it's been a while. It's been a while. Well, and what I, one of the things I have so enjoyed about reading, um, We Are the Ark, and let me read the full subtitle so that people get that, returning our gardens to their true nature with acts of restorative kindness. When you and I last spoke, Mary, you had just had this really pivotal moment in your life that starts you on this journey of We Are the Ark. And you had just launched We Are the Ark when we were in conversation about your last title. And so it's been just a real joy to read through how and where your adventure has gone since then. So before we go there, though, I would love to have you remind listeners a little bit of how you identify who you are and what you do and what role plants and landscapes might play in who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, originally a garden designer, a landscape designer from Ireland. I grew up on a very small farm in the south of Ireland and I studied landscape design in college. And um, I had some experiences with plants when I was a young girl, which um, uh, kind of were the formative experiences for my life um, in terms of my my career and what I chose to do. And I went to college, started a design business. I was very successful. Um, because I'm good at the design side of things. So it was kind of straightforward. It was a little bit depressing, though, because I wasn't very good at bossing my clients around. So that's kind of an important part is to be confident when you're a designer. And I wasn't terribly confident. And so they would change their minds every five minutes, depending on what program they'd watched the night before. <laughs> so I kind of lost the will to live uh, gradually, um, not not literally, just, you know, um, didn't really like what I was doing anymore. And then I did have a dream one night where I remembered 
those experiences from when I was young and the connection I had with plants and that's something that's available to everyone and uh, I brought my ideas to the Chelsea Flower Show which is a garden show in London where fashions are often made and at that time I thought it would be a good idea to try and kind of I guess manipulate the fashions to become more wild and and it definitely did that and then I ended up working all over the world living the dream as such as designer and then somebody made a movie about my life or a part of my life called Dare to be Wild which um, is kind of like a romantic comedy or not comedy a romantic drama and that was made in about 2015 and I decided to write the real story of that movie, but I I didn't really enjoy writing it because I'd sp- spoken to the screenwriter so much about it. I was kind of bored. So I started writing about my work and very quickly I wrote my way out of a job. And what I did was I had to figure out how to work with, with gardens. I wasn't dictating what the land was going to become. And I was trying to work in kind of a co-creation with nature and figure it out and the garden awakening was a big step along that journey and it was kind of the book that I always wanted myself and nobody had written it so I wrote it and it was kind of a blend of old ways of working with land and magic and intention and um you know permaculture ideas like forest gardening and how to manage um you know living with your little piece of land in in ways that were not quite as an imposition of our own creative ideas upon the earth so that was that and then that went well and um a a few years later I, i i spoke to you about this but i'll just remind your listeners um i was sitting at my desk designing um and i looked out the window and it was a winter's morning and the kids had gone to school and a fox ran across the front of my lawn towards this kind of wild area to the left. And just chasing him were two hares, which was very unusual in itself. And then I kept watching and I saw a little hedgehog who should have been asleep and they're generally nocturnal. And he was also going in the same direction. And so it was a bit, it reminded me of Noah's Ark stories from when I was a kid. So I went outside and I, I followed the direction they were coming from. And there was a little field. I lived at that point, I lived in a very, um, in a con- not too far away from where I built my house, but it was a rented place. And um, I was, there was this beautiful thicket of a field at the end of, of my laneway across the little small country road. And I always loved that field because it was impenetrable to humans. It was just really thick of gorse and bracken and, and blackthorn and hawthorn and all native plants to Ireland you know but there was no way in and it always felt really kind of magical and somebody had got planning permission to build a house at the top of the field and they had done what everybody does they'd gone in with a big machine and they cleared it out to make a garden without any thought for all the creatures our shared kin that called it home and I stood there and I was really horrified because it was something I had done myself on so many occasions and I realized that I, I I had a long way to go. So I went back inside and started researching again and 
I set up a movement and it based on a website really um, and a Facebook group called We Are The Ark. And I called it We Are The Ark because I didn't want it to be an organization other than I didn't want to own it. I wanted it to become a movement that spread around the world and and which it has done. And it's a growing movement. So the year is about 2019 when this takes place and you have this epiphany yeah. and you are, I think it's fair to say, a little bit devastated at this epiphany of your not just complicit, but active role in harming the lives of the world around us. Is is that a fair yes. statement? Yeah. And yeah. At, when we last spoke in 2019, you had started ARC. Remind people what ARC stands for, because it's uh it's a it's a multi-layer play on words, but um talk about both of those. Okay, well the ARC it does create a vision or an image in one's mind of that story you know from religions where all the creatures are on board in this sea but I didn't want people to think it was a religious thing so I I called it acts of restorative kindness to the earth because I certainly don't want anyone to feel excluded do you know and are are included it's 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 I'm sorry that doesn't make sense it just I just wanted it to be inclusive of everyone you right, know right so I so I, I was in the beginning I, I had just called it we are the ark but people were nervous about it because they thought it was some kind of affiliated religious organization and I was like no not at all so I had to change it so that people didn't feel that and as soon as I I put on the acts of restorative kindness it it kind of it blew up you know right and of course the concept of arc the word arc predates by a lot the the story of Noah's ark as told in the Christian bible so yeah you know, let's let, let, we'll take the word back from that one very important cultural mythology story history, however you want to see it. But the word predates that that story, yeah, and the concept of it as a, mm -hmm. a, a vessel, a, a chalice, if you will, for um, protecting and holding something else. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it is. That's lovely. Actually, didn't know that. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, and so the idea of this, this acts of restorative kindness, you then have this, you know, big push of energy and you you start this, this website and it's a movement uh, and it has become, I mean, in, in this book, We Are the Ark, uh, you, you, outline, you know, as of printing the most recent numbers, which are there are thousands of people who have signed up to commit their heads, their hearts, their hands, their land, whatever that might be, to this idea of protecting and caring for and including uh, all manner of life in their cultivating of their places, let's say. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, who was in, who was like working with you on this? And now, give give listeners an outline of what does it mean to to be part of this movement, and maybe give us some examples, and then we'll we'll dive into the book, Mary. Sure. Um, there was in the beginning, my friend, my friend Claire, who's my manager, and. Um, her other half, Joe, and 
a lady in America called Jen Halter Prender. That's it. And then um, she was the, between them, they set up the website. And then Ruth Evans, who's the illustrator for the book, she did some illustrations to go with the website. And she illustrated both books. Ruth is really, uh, has a really special energy in her work. And I kind of wanted that to be woven in. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then myself and Claire provided photographs and I did all the words and we just, stuck it up there and launched it on Facebook and that was it and and then people did come on board they wanted to you know a lot of business people and they wanted to turn it into like a you know a big organization because they saw the potential in it and I started down that path and set up bank accounts and all that and I just my instincts kept telling me this is wrong you know this this is not this is this is going to end up being about raising money to pay people that are working rather than the actual movement. So I put an end to it. So I don't know if that was the right thing to do, but it felt like the right thing to do. So, but I, I do realize that there's nothing behind the movement, only me. And so it's hard for me to get that out in the world on my own. And so that's why I really try and empower people to take ownership of the movement themselves. Mm. And so the only problem with it was that even though the instructions were on the website, people were still confused. And I think people don't like reading websites. There was probably too much information on it. So I eventually decided or gave in and gave, wrote a book because Initially, I, was, I really didn't want, I, I, and maybe I know I am extreme, you know, I am extreme and I know that that's probably important that, but I, I might be biting off my nose to spite my face kind of thing in that I don't want to be selling anything, you know, I, I mean, people are always asking me to sell, we are the arc signs for their gardens and, you know, I could get into that and make a business out of it or whatever but I, I really want this to be something that people see as a gift and not as something another way that somebody else makes money do you know what I mean I, I just do I do really it's... wanted it to be yeah really belong to everyone and so they have to make their own signs out of whatever they have yeah well and I think it gets to like this mm, dilemma this complication that you are struggling even to articulate really is is part i think of the very concept of transcending um preconceived connotations of what a garden means and preconceived connotations of what a movement is in a world that has us so boxed in in capitalistic enterprise structures as the only metric by which we measure progress or success or accomplishment that it is even hard to define. But I also know that many, many, many humans out there are working hard to redefine what it means to be engaged. And I feel like one of the things maybe that you are hitting up against is this idea of trying to move us either back into or forward into a, an idea of a fully collaborative barter economy versus one based on 
hard currency or or dollar currency. I'm not sure, but but I think it's an important struggle. Like even not being able to articulate it, I think is part of the progress you are asking all of us to carry. Yeah, I guess it, it is. It's also probably because I'm not terribly articulate. <laughs> I, I beg to <laughs> differ. I beg to differ, Mary. I think I think you've got articulation down fine. Um, so okay, so you you start this movement. You put up the the website. Um, the the artistry. Let's just let's just take a little side eddy over here to to the artistry of your illustrator because it is just sublimely evocative and immersive yeah claire or ruth is is really special and claire ledbetter is he's my is my manager is also her manager and she saw that ruth had a particular energy in her work which was the same kind of energy as the words that i write if mm. that makes sense yeah. and so she she put us together and i mean i just I I mean, I don't know if people follow Ruth um online or on on any of those social media channels, but her work just gets better and better and better all the time, and um, it's really special. And yeah, and and it it kind of has an emotion in it, and yeah, and an understanding of ecology and yeah. those relationships between between creatures and humans, and and just the spirit that runs through everything. She she pulls it all together in in these incredibly beautiful almost childlike ways you know and yeah they're they're not it's not like her art is childlike it's just the energy of that magic that we all knew when we were children yeah and I think that symbiotic pairing of the two of you was genius and and Mm -hmm. I think it also moves us into some of the structure of the book, actually, and the way it depicts lives and different lives and the importance. So let's move to the book and you deciding, okay, I'm going to put the book out there because that's one way to keep it going and expand it and allow even more people greater access to some specifics and and more stories or or models to to share forward. Let's start first with the three rules of ecology. Let's start there, Mary. And then and then we'll move into what your what your instruction manual for We Are the Ark kind of entails. I was trying to find ways of explaining to people in the simplest ways of of how ecology is kind of everything really. And these ones were written by a guy called Paul Watson who she started the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, I think. Um, and they were basically saying that if we don't, we don't work within these laws, that no, no base, no creature can survive outside of them. And they're very simple, really. They're the law of diversity, the law of interdependence, um, and the law of finite resources. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In honor of Earth Day 2023, a global day of environmental education, celebration, and advocacy 
first celebrated on April 22, 1970. This week, we're in conversation with environmental advocate and self-described ex-garden designer, Mary Reynolds, founder of We Are the Ark Movement, based in Ireland. We'll be back for more from Mary, known as Wild Mary Mary, online after a quick break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through that rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. CP is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. One of the ways the Garden Conservancy does this is through films, documenting some longer history of particular gardens, or digging into particular topics foundational across gardens. For instance, the Conservancy has created two films around the Ann Spencer House and Garden in Lynchburg, Virginia. The films include a lovely five-minute trailer about the history of Ann Spencer and the importance of her garden in our wider culture. Further, in November of 2020, the Garden Conservancy filmed an American Public Gardens Association panel discussion centering the idea of telling the whole story. Using an inclusive interpretation of gardens and historic landscapes to reach broader audiences. The filming of this panel, which is available at thegardenconservancy.org, is perfectly set in the historic Ann Spencer House and Garden. As the home of Harlem Renaissance poet Ann Spencer, this garden has many layers of beauty, of story, and of wider importance. Spencer was the first Virginian and first African American to have her poetry included in the Norton Anthology of American Poetry. She was also committed to activism on behalf of equal rights, and her house and garden served as a political center of the community, as well as inspiration for her poetry. In 2008, the Garden Conservancy assumed an advisory role with the Hillside Garden Club in Lynchburg for the rehabilitation of the garden. Panelists at that November 2020 discussion included Sean Spencer Hester, who is the granddaughter of Ann Spencer and executive director of the Ann Spencer House and Garden Museum. Peggy Cornett of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation at Monticello in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Sarah Gordon of Sylvester Manor Educational Farm on Shelter Island, New York.
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back now to our conversation with environmental gardening advocate Mary Reynolds of Ireland, founder of a rewilding garden movement known as We Are the Ark, which on Instagram can be found at Let's Build an Ark. Mary is describing more about these first three foundational laws of ecology as we come back to our conversation. The first one was the law of diversity, and that's about um, how the more diversity in within the community of, of plants and creatures, the, the stronger the ecosystem is, the more resilient it is, you know. The ideal would be to have the whole, you know, tapestry of life present in the world, but it's it's not. And we have these broken spaces, mm-hmm. you know, these broken pieces of heart I, I always think of them like and um and the idea would be to kind of restore as many pieces of that as possible now within the arc system you know because if you wanted to have like wolves and all the predators you, you couldn't exactly do it in a suburban lot you know but um in in the arc I ask people to step in and become all the missing creatures say the, the you know the the apex and keystone species if they can and that sounds quite complicated but um really what i mean is that they become the wolf they become the deer they become you know the large grazing herbivores or whatever and because they all play a really important role and that sounds complicated but what it means is that you have as many layers of ecosystem maturity as possible so say you become the by becoming the large grazing mm-hmm. herbivores you you you're mowing a path that's the that's the same thing or you know becoming the deer is you're 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 nibbling back the brambles so that they don't they don't take over and um you know if if there was like a a, a a creature that you had in your part of the world over here there would be the wild boar that would root away at the ground and, and expose the earth and it's very important for ground nesting insects, for um, for exposing and giving a chance to annual native seeds, which um, they need that exposure to the light um, to, to, to be given a chance. And then they will be very important for certain larvae to have habitat and to have food. And so it's trying to create as many different layers as possible. So that's that one. And then... Um, it also means that, you know, as many different types of native plant as possible, right. Right. you know, and that's, and we, we, I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that later. And then the next one was the law of interdependence. Um, and that's the same kind of thing, but it, it kind of, it kind of, it underlines that all the creatures that live within a community are, they're dependent on, on the health and presence of all the other native creatures in that system for their own survival because they've all evolved alongside each other so we call it the local food web and they they all have to be present mm-hmm. because they're all completely dependent upon each other i mean there's obvious examples of that i mean just the large blue butterfly over in in the uk um it needs wild time to lay its eggs on if it doesn't have wild thyme it won't lay its eggs do you know about this particular species you do no but i know the concept and it is it is absolutely one of um you know the 
the the Xerxes Society and Doug Tallamy here a lot of Doug, a lot of yeah, focus on this kind of um trying to make visible these kinds of relationships uh so that people can then correlate well I love songbirds well if you love songbirds then you necessarily need to love caterpillars and moths period yeah that kind yeah. of idea and then learning through you know the work of Xerxes Society the invertebrate conservation organization or many others you know who are the who are the lives that depend on each one of your plants and or which one of your native plants is the host plant for these creatures you know yeah so making this web visible i think is very much a part of what you are doing and and what these other groups are doing as well and the more the merrier for heaven's sakes yeah and it's funny because people think that it can just be plant um connected to insect art but just to go back to the this particular one it's it's really really amazing and people just have no idea of these intricate relationships so just this this butterfly it has to have wild time to lay its eggs on because that's that's what it has those larvae have evolved to eat you know because plants are incredibly good at protecting themselves and they're full of poisonous chemicals that they that the larvae have focused themselves upon often on only one species in order to get over the chemicals and 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 manage not to die when they eat them so so they so they focused on this one species they the larvae get fat on the time they drop to the ground they hope that a red ant colony has developed in the area. And when the red ants pass by, they pick up the larvae who have also evolved to smell exactly like the larvae of a red ant. The red ant carries them back to their nest because they think, oh my God, one of my babies has gone missing. And then it proceeds to eat all of the other larvae in the nest. And then it comes out and becomes a butterfly, goes into a chrysalis and becomes a butterfly. Like it's just nature is unbelievable. unbelievable i mean the more you mm -hmm. look into it the more you think wow. wowzers this <laughs> we are just we haven't got a clue i mean they estimate there's 8.7 million species of creature on the planet and we we've only categorized and recognized 1.2 right. it's amazing yeah so and we're losing them before we've even met yeah. them Yes. You know, that that's 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 the thing. It's like, wow, there's like if you look at what's happening in the deep sea or you know, in in, in the microscopic level or you know, narwhals for God's sake, like they things these these creatures are ridiculous. Like if you start looking at it, you'd wonder why in God's name would these crazy, crazy people be going out of space where it's dead and you can't survive and nothing survives, and why would you want to go there when you have this? True, true, right. <laughs> Uh, um, yes. And why would you worry about taking care of that when we haven't taken care of this? And, um, and how do we all do that so much better? So I love these. So we have one more law. Oh, yeah. Yes. And it's an important one. I think it's, it's so crucial. And it's one of the ones that we have been sold, like, so perniciously sold the idea that it's not true and it still is true talk about finite resources mary yeah it's it's <laughs> it's just that um that 
there's only so many resources left on the planet. Like we, we, you know, we, they, they, like, I think I put it in the book, like there was like, it's, it's not like there's a, an interplanetary postal system sort of bringing more lithium or bringing more peatlands or, you know, when, you know, we've already washed 70% of all the topsoil into the ocean. Um, you know, when the topsoil is gone, we're gone, you know, um, and when all the coral is gone from the sea because it's acidified, it's gone, you know, it's not coming back. Or when, and it's just, we are pushing the earth to a point of no return and she has limits, you know, it's like, it's like we are, she, the earth is like our mother, you know, everything we are comes from her body and her atmosphere and, you know, when we die, we go back into that body. And unfortunately, we have become like spoiled children who take and take and take. And it's just, it's not, it's not, sorry, that's kind of not fair. It's just the systems that we've created have disconnected us so far from, you know, what is important is that, we, and, and we have been instructed to continue filling the holes that are left from disconnecting from the mother earth we've 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 been instructed to fill that gap with purchasing stuff or you know drugs alcohol sex whatever whatever fills up that hole you keep doing that you know and the simplest thing will solve it is if you step outside and you take off your shoes and you kind of just you start with that one step and asking the earth what she needs rather than, you know, what else can we get out of this? And, you know, people are waking up to that. I mean, there are, there are wonderful people out there changing everything and more and more of us exist. And it is a wave of consciousness that will rise to the surface and it will, it's kind of like a race to the, to the, to the, to the, to the finish line, you know, um, but we don't have a choice. I mean, even those people who really want to just keep going and, you know, they all have six private jets or whatever it is that they're doing. And, you know, there's a hundred corporations in the world that are causing most of the problems. And um, still politicians are being lobbied to blame the individual. And that is not going to solve it. Like people have to start really looking for the truth of the situation that we're in and they're not going to find it unless they really dig into it and my understanding is that the mass media is not presenting the truth of the situation we are in and people really need to look into what they can do as individuals as communities to change um our future into a positive and beautiful one yes the 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 law of finite resources is um it's an important one for us all to look at and try and truly grasp and then try and truly mold the way we live our lives to to live within those uh, so that we don't just deplete them all to nothing. Um, there, there are solutions being offered to us, but they are not truthful solutions. 
we, we really have to start thinking outside of the solutions that we're being offered because those solutions, if the solutions are going to make money for someone, you've got to question mm. it and go, mm-hmm. mm, let's look into this here now and see if this really is a solution. Yeah. And, and if it's promising that we can continue living the way we're living, there's something yeah. wrong because of that third law, the, the, the law of finite resources. If we don't change everything, we are going to 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 lose our chance at having a um, a future. And one of those ways of changing everything is by starting by changing, as you are asking, how we think, how we see, and how we care for the ground we are on, starting right where we are, and moving it from old paradigms of what a garden is or isn't into this idea of them being acts of restorative kindness. Take us down the list of how you are suggesting, hoping, modeling people people do this with their pieces of land. Starting, I think, with that very beautiful image of taking your shoes off, walking outside and putting your feet on this incredible, generous planet and just trying to connect from there. Yeah, so... I really want people to, to um, if they want to save the planet, they have to start with their own patch of it. It's a very simple thing. And a large part of the reason that, that our climate is collapsing, apart from like burning carbon fuels, obviously, is the removal of the skin, the, the Earth's clothes, her systems, her communities. Um, it's causing desertification and um, a collapse in her ability to give us clean air, clean water, um, food. And we've lost 75% of all the wildlife on the planet in, since 1970. And they are an intricate woven part of that web. So if you're going to do this work, you can't do it unless you start with your own bit. And if you if you can't bear to give back all of your land to turn it into an ark, even if you give a little part, I promise you, when you see how quickly nature returns when all the little creatures return you'll start to give back more before you even know it like you'll be so excited by the little bit that you have and so the first thing I ask people to do is to just yeah go outside take off your shoes and make a promise to that piece of the earth that you're going to do what you can to um, to allow her to return to her true nature right there and um I suppose the best thing to do is to get to know your land, which is something that most people don't do. Um, and that will be a huge education in itself. And, and to take your time to do nothing and, and see which parts are, are wet parts, which parts are shady. Do nothing, you know. And by doing nothing, you're doing an awful lot, you know. I mean, other than the very first thing that I would ask people to do is when you're standing there getting to know the land and you know, maybe learning what plants are native to your area or whatever that is. But um, if you find any non-native invasive plants, they need to come out immediately. Now, I know that's a huge problem in, in, in that part of the world because the seed bank is infested with the seeds of non-native invasive plants. And th- this is our fault as gardeners. And mind-bogglingly, bogglingly, I can't even say that word, um, they're still selling these plants in the garden centres here and there. And you're kind of, like over here, um, the, the, the National Park and Wildlife Services has, has stated that 
one of the biggest threats to the collapse to to nature um in Ireland and everywhere but is 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 are these plants rhododendron and Portuguese laurel or cherry laurel and they're still being sold everywhere you know even though there's so many of us out there trying to get rid of them because these have not evolved within the local food web and they do cause the collapse of communities because they take over they don't have any natural checks and balances and they have to go and I ask people if they can at all if they can at all if they can try do it without chemicals please do you know whatever you can manage you know and um that's I guess the two first things that you do and after that it's just about you know you can do this in a window box you know you can do this in in a small an area that you have you know and like just say you only have a window box to do this and I know that sounds like oh that's not going to do much but if everybody does that 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 changes Mm. something Mm -hmm. you know so you've got you've got these like just say you've got milkweed in your in your window box and you know the the poor old monarch butterflies they really need somewhere to lay their eggs and imagine if you got lucky and they actually came and laid their eggs (laughs) in your milkweeds you'd get to watch these amazing creatures and you'd have this whole relationship with nature all of a sudden and you've done something good to help these creatures and that will fill your heart Mm. with joy you know you can you know, you might find there's a spider that comes to live there and it might not sound like much, but by allowing people to reconnect with whatever they can, that's natural. It'll really help because there's this shifting baseline syndrome, which really is such an important concept. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In honor of Earth Day, April 22nd, 2023. This week, we're in conversation with Mary Reynolds, founder of the We Are the Ark movement. We'll be back for more with Mary, explaining more about her newest title, an instruction manual for growing a garden ark entitled We Are the Ark, returning our gardens to their true natures with acts of restorative kindness. We'll be back after a quick break. Stay with us. In honor of Earth Day, and as a compliment to my conversation with Mary Reynolds, I wanted to share as well a poem from Ann Spencer, shared by her granddaughter, Sean Spencer Hester, in a Garden Conservancy published essay. That poem is this, quote, Earth, I thank you for the pleasure of your language. You've had a hard time bringing it to me from the ground to grunt through the noun to all the way feeling, seeing, smelling, touching, awareness. I am here. End quote. It is the earth in whose company I think most of us feel the most alive, the most here. Happy Earth Day. May it be every day in every one of our lives and gardens, decisions and actions.
We're back now to our conversation with environmental gardening advocate, Mary Reynolds, founder of a rewilding garden movement known as We Are the Ark. As we come back, Mary is describing more about the important concept of shifting baseline syndrome in our expectations and environmental decision-making for the future. You know, it's a very simple idea, and it's the idea that with every passing generation, the concept of what is natural changes. Like right. in my dad's generation, the sun was blocked for a moment by the amount of migrating butterflies passing overhead or by the birds migrating in, in their flocks overhead. You know, or the seas used to be hopping with life, like the the, lead, the waves used to be hopping with life. And the, the the seas were crystal clear from the beds of oysters on the on the sea floor. And now everything is quiet. And if we see one butterfly, we think, oh, it's grand, because we don't know any better. We don't know any better. We we have forgotten that, you know, what is natural is abundance, is pure abundance. And instead, we have this very, very weak version of of an ailing mother who, you know, is on her last legs. And but the wonderful thing about it is that what you get to see if you build an ark is how quickly she recovers. Like it is amazing. Mm. It's like it's like this never happened. Right. It's just like this never happened instantly. It's it's like it's like a big Batman light goes out into the sky and all these creatures turn up even when there's nothing to turn up to. It's like they know that they have sanctuary here. And I built built a house on on, on this land and I, I've only been here for just over mm. a year. And it is amazing what has turned up here, you know, from from basically an industrially farmed field. Now it has like badgers and um foxes there's a family of buzzards living in the woods beside me and owls at night time and bats sweeping down over the pond and like the amount of dragonflies and shrews and oh my goodness you sit there and it's the most entertaining thing you've ever seen in your life <laughs> the amount of movement the amount of the amount of life like it's just it's just amazing and if you put a drone up into the sky it is phenomenal. It's industrial farmed, dead zone land everywhere. Every ditch cut down, every tree removed. And then there's my ark. And it is just unbelievably hopeful and important. And so, you know, I'm lucky in that I have acres of land, you know, but it doesn't matter. I mean, we have this wonderful group of art. We call it, we call ourselves archivists, you know, <laughs> and they're from all over, the, all over the world. There's people with window boxes in Norway or, you know, ranches in, in, in the States or, you know, they're everywhere and they all feel as hopeful as I do. And they also, it's the first time they've been given something to do, which actually restores hope and empowers them because changing your light bulbs isn't, isn't empowering. You know, um, all those things that we've been offered as solutions, they don't really empower you. They just kind of make you feel like you're doing something. But this is different. This actually actually turns people into into these into these powerfully love based warriors, you know, so they're going out into their neighborhoods and they're seeing all these ridiculous bases, which are just lost opportunities, which could be arcs. You know, and people are putting up signs in 
public parks that are just unused there to make people feel like they're being looked after and saying this could be an arc, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you know, it has changed so many people's lives. It's empowered them. It's given them, you know, it's, 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 it had a ripple effect on their neighborhoods. There's just loads of people who realize we can't keep going with this, this crazy um, control of, of, of the skin of the earth, you know, um, that we need to do something different. And yeah, so there's loads of people out there doing great work and, and it is, it is changing. And the thing is, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a messy garden. Number one, if you put up a sign saying this is an arc and people understand it immediately, if they have the website underneath, if they want to look into it a bit more. But I mean, I'm designing a massive project in the west of Ireland at the moment. It's one of the biggest tourist projects ever in Ireland. And it's, it's based upon the Tree of Life. It's a series of three arcs that are you know, public spaces that will be woven with ecology and mythology. And um, it's extremely designed, but every part of it, and I had to come up with a way of doing a public situation, do you know? Because when you're having, you know, thousands and thousands of people visiting a space every week, you're going to have to, it has to be practical and designed to a point where, you know, the paths are safe or it'll be able to take the wear and tear and, and there's stories woven through it and every element of it not only has to have a practical function, it has to have an ecological function, which is, is really challenging. And we're working with the idea of self-willed land in that, you know, the seeds come from the earth itself, from where we're working. Um, you know, she decides what grows there. And then we come along and add to it. We add as many different native plants with from within the local area where we source them as possible and it's a completely new way of working and it's terrifying (laughs) I would bet it is yes that's quite a task and again it's asking you to work uh, beyond or above or in front of the structures that have been in place for so long uh, but not so long that we can't uh, get to something better than them for sure exactly yeah you know to get back to something in the very beginning mary where we were talking and you said it was important to you to not have the idea of the ark associated with an organized religion and yet what i think is so compelling about the way you one of the things that is so compelling about the way you are approaching this idea of bringing our gardened spaces back into alignment and partnership and relationship with the nature around our spaces is that you very openly and lovingly include this idea of faith and of magic. And I think this is one of one of the elements, one of the aspects of life that people have lost. This is one of the gaps that we're not sure how to fill in a world where organized religion has often become one of the systems that has failed us. And as well as our political systems, our economic systems, our food systems, whatever they might be. And so being able to bring that level of soul into the work 
and into our lives with these spaces and these other lives, I think is very, very valuable for many people. Yeah. I I, I think all that mystery mm. that we, we've attributed to religion, it exists in, in the natural world. Mm. And it's like it's like a whole forgotten universe of knowledge and mystery that I feel that all the religions of the world are based upon, you know, and yeah, it's as simple as that. And our our lives are impoverished without it. Um, yeah. So they they are because because we are simply reflections of the health of the earth and mm. and the, the 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 way that the earth is taking a nosedive in terms of her health especially you know the last 10 years it's just getting faster and faster and that 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 is pretty obvious in in if you look around at your communities and your families and your friends that the health their health our health is taking a nosedive and in a parallel universe with the with the earth beneath our feet, you know, that we're just and that that was what our ancestors always told us in all the myths and all the old stories, is that we are simply reflections of her. And if we don't take care of this earth beneath our feet, then we will end up living in the wasteland. And that's where we are. But the wonderful thing is that even though we have driven her to this point that she will be able to recover if we start now, you know. Mm -hmm. Let's move to one of the sections in the book um, called The Plants That Build an Ark. Talk to us about how you approached this. And, you know, of course, it starts with native plants, plants that are native to your own area, as you've already um, stressed the importance of these plants having co-evolved with their soils, with their hydrologies, with their insect and bird life. Talk about how you suggest people walk through choosing different layers and levels of these plants in their places. Okay, well, um, I think it's it's the the diff the. The, the reason that building an ark is different to building a garden is because it, it's it's a true co-creation with the much higher intelligence beneath our feet and all around us. You know, there's it's it's about listening and learning what she wants and what she needs as opposed to what we think is pretty, which is a big difference, you know. Right. Um, and there's some overlap, and, but the important yeah. thing is being able to look at it from both perspectives, right? Well, I don't know if there's a perspective that would involve planting up a garden full of non-native plants and trying to call it an ark. So I don't know if there's an overlap in that sense. And and again, I do realize that I'm extreme, but somebody has to be, you know? Yeah. What I mean by that is not uh, not that you should plant pretty non-natives. My point is that many of our natives, and I happen to be speaking from one of the great biodiversity hotspots on the planet, so many of our natives are drop-dead beautiful. <laughs> yes, they are. That's the overlap. They are. Yeah. yeah. They are, that's, a, that's a good point. And then some of them aren't at all. <laughs> right. And some of them have these have these incredibly 
kind of negative connotations. Like, like I, I was walking through my arc the other day with one of my neighbors and you could just see she was horrified. Like, <laughs> yeah. And she kept saying, but you have, you've got thistles and, and rushes, like rushes, they're horrible. And I said, don't say that. They'll be upset, <laughs> number one. And um, no, they're not horrible. They're not they're horrible. Really important. There's so many little shrews living in those clumps, you know. And um, yeah, it's it, and there's a reason for all of these things. And um, I suppose, you know, that, that you know, plants have families and communities the way we do. And they communicate through their you know, their relationships with the microorganisms in the ground. Um, and they they pass chemicals called phytochemicals through the air to communicate from above. You know, they, they feed their elders um, when the elders are dying. They feed their own young seedlings. They, they, ha- they, they look after each other. And, you know, science is catching up with what we know in our hearts. If you're if you're sensitive enough and quiet enough to listen and get to know them, you know, as plants being the native plant communities are the kind of science is catching up, finding out like that plants can hear, they can see, um, you know, that they have they have reactions like fear and emotions. They can they can actually measure all this stuff now, and you know, people kind of. It's a bit scary because, like, the reality of life is. I'm sorry, now I'm slightly diverging on you, Jennifer. But it's okay. the reality of life is that, look, we used to live in harmony with this planet and all the creatures because it's a very painful existence when you realize that all the creatures that we coexist with are just as sentient as we are. And so our ancestors used to live in constant ritual. Um, of giving back and of gratitude and being in service to the lives that they took Hmm. Um, and and that and that's what changes everything when you realize that and you really absorb it you cannot go back thank you very much for being a guest on the program today it has been a real joy to read through the new book and a pleasure to have you back on cultivating place Thank you so much, Jennifer, for having me. Mary Reynolds is a voice of passion and garden reason coming to us from her home in Ireland. A self-described ex-garden designer, she's the author of several books, most recently an instruction manual for the movement she founded in 2019, advocating for us all to grow and tend garden arcs. The book is entitled, We Are the Ark, Returning Our Gardens to Their True Natures with Acts of Restorative Kindness. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. 
Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. The CP team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating places distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place here on Earth. I'm Jennifer Jewell.